Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. My name is Mike Navina. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Today, my guest is Daniel Roland. And if you're not familiar with him, Daniel is an audio engineer, a producer, an educator, a music tech executive. He has been part of numerous international tours. He's produced music for an Oscar-winning Pixar film. He's mastered multi-platinum Grammy-nominated albums. He's worked with artists like Nine Inch Nails, Seal, Meek Mill, Philip Glass, Gwen Stefani. And he's even worked with companies like Disney, working on Star Wars and Marvel projects. And as if his list of credentials wasn't long enough, he is also the head of strategy and partnerships at Lander. And in this conversation, we have a really great chat all about the role of AI in music technology, where it's at right now, where it's going in the future, different uses for it. And he also tackles a lot of the criticisms of it right now, because with AI being new technology and with it just starting to make its way into the music industry right now, there's certainly a lot of backlash against it. And Daniel does a great job of tackling those hard issues. And really, I think at the end of this conversation, you're going to have a new appreciation for the audio industry and where this technology is heading and how we can use it. And yes, there might be some things that are uncomfortable to embrace with this new future, but there are also a lot of positive outcomes from this as well. And we definitely get into all of that in this chat. So with that being said, let's just jump right into the interview because I think you're going to find this very, very fascinating. Daniel Roland, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How are you today, man? I am awesome, man. Thank you for having me, Mike. Awesome. Well, thanks for being on. Uh, for people who might not be familiar with you, who you are, and your background, how you got into all of the awesome stuff you're working on these days, can you give us that story? Sure. I'll try to make it you know, reasonably short here. So I, I love I started... when people go long because it's all you always get the best stuff when people go long. Well, we we've all we all have our, you know, individual long and winding roads, right? So in yeah. mine is certainly <laughs> certainly no different. I, I I may even have come in, in the industry in a in a weirder way than a lot of people who knows. But uh so I started you know, like a lot of people is a is a guitar player, um, you know, is a musician, uh playing in clubs and stuff when I was about fifteen. And and did that, you know, I kind of I'm in my 40s. I was the Gen X, you know, kid back then. So it was a lot of, you know, Pearl Jam and, you know, Alice in Chains and Nine Inch Nails and that kind of stuff. Bands I got some of which I've gotten to work with since, which has been we'll get into. But like, that's amazing. Uh, yeah. So just playing in clubs from about 15 to 25, managing a grocery store so I could just kind of do gigs. Right. And drink a lot of beer and party in a small town. I live was in Charleston, South Carolina is where I grew up. And uh, no real aspirations to do anything beyond that. I wasn't like even making albums back then. It was just about, you know, playing and partying and, and that whole thing. So I eventually went to college when I was about 26, right? So I went pretty late compared to most people. I had attempted it when I was younger, but I was just too crazy, man. <laughs> it just wasn't working for me. Uh, I could, couldn't get my brain around music theory. I tried to go for music, things that I love now and it come fairly easily to me. But for whatever reason, at that age, I have a lot of empathy for people who struggle with and you know audio theory or, or your music theory or all these different types of things, because it's not, not as easy for some of us as it is for others. But I'll get into that as well. Anyway, so I went to school, when uh, University of North Carolina at Asheville and got a bachelor's of science in uh, um, music technology. And then eventually, well, immediately after that, got a master's degree in it as well uh, in, in Nashville at MTSU, which I've been teaching at for about 15 years. I'm a professor of, of music technology there. Um, and yeah, and that kind of got me, I came into the industry totally backwards, right? So I started as kind of a half-assed guitar player, ended up going to college, you know, for, for music and, and, and music technology, and then started working in the industry after that, uh, like ser seriously in the industry. So it was when I got out of grad school uh, that I met a guy named Adrian Ballou, who some people will know, you know, listening to this, some won't, but he's a fairly well-known guitar player and singer, and he was the, you know, front man for King Crimson for 30-something years. He was with Frank Zappa, you know, Talking Heads, David Bowie, Nine Inch Nails. I mean, just all these crazy artists. He's played on hundreds and hundreds of albums. And uh, he and I became partners in crime and produced, you know, God knows how many hundreds of songs together, toured around the world, made, you know, mobile applications for music production and all sorts of different things. And that was kind of what kicked off my career. And, you know, I ended up working with Disney and Pixar and a whole bunch of people after that. So, again, I don't want to be too long-winded about this, but the, kind of that was my how I got into things was uh, through through going to school and then through working with Adrian. 
that's amazing. So at that point, were you doing like was it was there mixing and mastering that you were doing at that point or was it like just focusing a lot more on the tech side of it? And like you said, like building apps and that kind of thing. Yeah, no, it's a it's a good question. So I I, I when I met Aid, I originally was so being a guitar player, I was super into using, you know, a computer for crazy guitar sounds and to kind of, you know, make my rig smaller. Like I love love guitar pedals, but uh, you know, for for moving around, you know, I was kind of into the the computer side of things. So I Adrian had this massive guitar, I mean, ridiculous like '80s guitar system, like when he used to tour with Bowie, and it's like you can't tour with that anymore. It's too <laughs> expensive, right? You need to downsize. So I kind of came on board with him to do that, to take his, you know, whatever the seven pedals he was touring with and all the rat gear and see what we could get into the computer and axe effects and a Kemper and like how much we could downsize it. And that's kind of how we kicked it off. And then I eventually um, built his studio in, in Nashville and was his audio engineer. And then from that became co-producer on everything. So it was kind of moving up the, the, the chain sort of uh, to, to where we were partners on stuff, which was great. And yeah, mix that involves, by the way, you know, I was mixing, recording everything, mixing everything and mastering everything. Wow. That's very cool. I, lo- I love that. Like, I, you know, I think that, uh, you know, before we started recording, you were talking about how there are a lot of different types of jobs that people can get in the music industry aside from just being in the studio. And, you know, your example there of just like helping people downsize their rigs is like <laughs> that is a job that people people do need. And and, and probably the, the, there, there's probably good money in it because there's big acts touring that have lots of gear and they need to downsize and, you know, it helps save them money too, right? Yeah. And, and that's, it's, a, I wasn't even thinking about that when, when we were chatting about that earlier, but you're right. I mean, that became a thing that I did. So for other bands, so forget about just guitar systems, right? Even with Nine Inch Nails, when I worked with them a bit, getting them on the Kemper and like making it so they could tour in a little more of a compact fashion. But even that also goes for live sound rigs, right? So for bands like metal bands, like Accept and stuff like that, taking their, you know, allowing them to tour with their own rig and not rely on the house system every night um and you know have meaning they could have predictable intermixes every night and you know all their automation could be taken care of on stage with the pyro and all that so i did a fair bit of that too which came out of this this my experiences with adrian 100 percent. i love that that's that's so cool so were you i mean being a guitar player i'm sure you were already familiar with a lot of a lot of that stuff just out of your personal interest i'm sure right Or, or were you just trying to figure it out on the fly most of it I was figuring out on the fly. I mean, I was super familiar with Ableton. I was super familiar with Max MSP and that side of things and like, you know, like crazy MIDI routing and all of that. But a lot of the live sound stuff I wasn't super familiar with. I was more a studio rat. So that definitely took a little, there was a little bit of a learning curve for there. And dude, I'm always figuring shit out on the fly. That's kind of my MO. It's like dig a hole, jump into it and find a way to climb out. So, I mean, I commit to stuff that I <laughs> have little idea about. I just kind of trust that I'll navigate. And I tell that to my students all the time, right? Just like, as long as you kind of believe in your ability to ingest information and, and you know, find mentors and all that stuff, like, you know, don't turn down opportunities just because you don't think you're good enough or you don't have the knowledge base. For sure. It's funny. It's like, that's one of the themes that I find pops up a lot on this podcast is people that have just said yes to something without having any experience in it before. And those always end up seeming to lead to the coolest gigs and, you know, the longest careers, because it's just something that, you know, you just fell into, but you're good at, or you have enough interest in it and, and you pursue it longer. And, you know, it's uh, it's it's really interesting. Um, so so yeah, you were doing all that stuff. You were engineering at the studio, and then how did you get to where you are now, where you're you're a mastering engineer, like a full time mastering engineer on your own? You're working with Lander. You've got you're teaching. You know, you got all this cool stuff going on. So, you know, what what, what was that transition like? Yeah, this is maybe another you know just interesting thing for people to hear. So I had never had any intention on getting into like the music technology space on the development side, right? I was just kind of I was just a nerd, you know, who loved pedals and software and gear, right? For you know making and manipulating sound, not building it, right? So I had, and I alluded to this earlier. So I was on tour with Adrian or no we were doing we were in Amsterdam for like a month working with the Metropole Orchestra Adrian had record had had written this whole album that the orchestra was doing so we were there recording that and doing the live performance stuff and uh like I met a who now a guy now who I've worked with on a number of projects over the years Nick Mueller at a whiskey bar in Amsterdam which is like the beginning of every great story <laughs> uh and anyway he was a mobile developer so for mobile applications right 
and we started talking about like st- cool stuff. I'm I'm very much into and have been for you know twelve or thirteen years. Uh, you know the iPad as a, as a musical instrument and all the just totally unique things people have built for that multi-touch interface that could not exist on desktop. And there's just some amazing things that I've I've used creatively. And he was like, "Hey, so what would you build in a perfect world?" So we kind of came up with some apps that we ended up putting out uh, with our company Noise. Uh, like multi-touch, like chaos pad on steroids, effects processor type stuff, and like an album that never plays the same way twice every time you listen to it with interactive visuals and just a bunch of really artsy stuff, right? Not things you're going to make a million dollars on. Um, anyway, I was I was at South by Southwest maybe eight years ago speaking um, and presenting about one of these apps that we had made, right? And um, and that, so those apps were kind of my gateway into the music tech side of things. And to be clear, I'm not a, so that might sound cooler than it is. I'm not a programmer. I wasn't like getting in there and, you know, in C and doing all this stuff. No, I'm, I'm a guy who knows a lot about sound and a lot about the technology to make sound as a user. And a lot of companies need opinions from people like me and probably a lot of people listening to this um, to know what the hell to build. They might be great at coding, but they're not the hardcore end user of the things that they're building. And that's a lot of times when you see products come out that aren't amazing and don't really seem to have a product market fit. It's because they didn't kind of dovetail those two sides of the conversation, if that makes sense. So I came at it from, from the user side, right? Um, and while I was at South by Lander had seen me, I guess, uh, apparently I had linked to Lander somehow on LinkedIn and I didn't even remember doing that. It wasn't even, the company wasn't even called Lander at the time. It was called Mixed Genius. So they had, uh, they had anyway found me at at South by and we went and had dinner. Uh, and they kind of told me about this, what they were attempting to do on the machine learning side of things, as far as applying it to music production, right? Which hadn't really been done to any, at any scale at that time that I'm aware of. And, uh, yeah, that was kind of how I got involved with Lander. And I thought it was a, a cool idea. And we'll talk about why I thought it was a cool idea. They were used to having audio engineers like throw rocks at them, as you might imagine, for like destroying the music industry, which I think people realize now didn't happen. But um, there's a lot, large underserved area of the music making community in, in kind of the modern world that needs to be addressed there. But we'll get into that. Uh, anyway, that's how I met him. And now I work with Lander. I've worked you know, with other music tech companies at this point. I'm heavy in the Web3 space. I do. I just spoke at Google a couple of weeks ago about that. I mean, I do partnerships with all the major Avid, Ableton, everybody. So I'm super immersed on the business side now, kind of with Lander as well as on the tech development side, because we build plugins and, you know, Lander is like, you know, 10, 20% mastering at this point, And then all this collaboration and samples and other stuff that we do, it kind of grew a lot over the years. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, that's so cool. And, and you brought up a really good point there about the idea of just like these companies needing people to almost consult on like how the music industry actually works and not just be like a tech company. And and it's funny because we, we were talking before we recorded it as well about just with Zoom alone, you know, and how like, you know, I record so many of these chats on Zoom and like all of the engineers have problems with it. You know, it's like it's it's it, it's, it hasn't been built with an audio engineer in mind. It's just, you know, with the general consumer. So um, I'm sure there's a lot of applications that people could use Zoom for that would benefit from having an audio engineer consulting with them you know so it, it, there's there's it, that's another amazing avenue of of business and of work that uh, people could get in this industry that isn't just that traditional studio route so you're, you're totally right and that applies you know outside of just you know music creation tools i mentioned the web3 thing right i mean there's some people blockchain native people that are building amazing stuff for music on that side of things that aren't music industry natives right so like i work a lot with with that side of the the fence these days because they need you already said it they need insight from people like us but that applies to car audio it applies to i mean there's just so many places where your knowledge and insight is a musician and you know certainly if you're on the tech side of things as well and you understand the tools is valuable so i digress but i just encourage everybody i mean it it opened up a whole new world for me when i started getting into the music tech side of things and realized you know i was always had so much trepidation about that because like i'm not a coder i don't know this i don't know that and just kind of putting all these hurdles in my way um but when i actually opened up and had a conversation with some of the people building these tools i realized how valuable my opinion was and my opinion is no more valuable than anybody than you or anybody else listening i just was able to stumble into a position where I could, could kind of voice it. For sure. Well, that that's really awesome. And yeah, it definitely makes sense why Lander would choose to work with you because you've obviously had that experience. And, you know, that for a company like that, who's trying to put something to a mass market and, you know, get 
you know, I guess originally it was kind of known for being a primarily mastering based company. Right. So like to have a mastering engineer behind the scenes, helping them out, that definitely that definitely helps out a lot. So now you're the head of strategy and partnership at Lander, right? Is that is that your official title there? That is, I don't even know what I do for Lander anymore, but that is my <laughs> official title, <laughs> whatever that means. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that now I'm, I, I was their senior audio engineer. Um, now we have a team of, you know, senior audio engineers and, you know, work with a lot of external mastering engineers too, Howie Weinberg and people like that to help kind of inform the engine. Um, and yeah, but mostly I've kind of pivoted away from working on the mastering side and I'm more focused on like, you know, plug-in development partnerships, kind of where we're heading. Cause you know, we, what we what we kind of learned from our users, and we're not the only company that's that's gotten this feedback, is, you know, people we we got you know Lander started uh, as you've already said, as most people know, is like you know AI mastering, and it didn't particularly sound very good when Lander started, and over the years, you know, like a lot of things has improved and, and is is pretty pretty awesome at this point. That we'll talk about where it is and where it isn't awesome. Mm-hmm. But our users were like, hey, if you're doing mastering, like, what about distribution? So we're like, okay, so what do you do? And that's kind of the, the next step in the creator journey. So we got into the distribution space, like, you know, getting your music out to DSPs, which is, has gone well. And then it was like, okay, well, let's move back to the left in the creator journey. So we all, you know, offering samples and plugins and, you know, instruments and collaboration tools. I mean, we have our own version of Zoom that's built just for, you know, music creators. So you can connect your DAW to somebody else's DAW for free. And, uh, and stream high-quality audio, as an example, or like project management in the cloud. And just anything, basically, from the moment of ideation all the way through distribution and, and monetization. If you want to connect, you want to hire... By the way, Mastering has... Uh, Lander has dozens of mastering engineers on our platform that you can hire. So, like, we're not... And Lander's not trying to, like, push people towards automated mastering anymore. It's like, no, come on. Like, hire Howie Weinberg. Hire me. Hire anybody else at various price points who've, you know, probably worked with some of your favorite artists. Do that. Um, it's not it's not like the core focus of our business anymore. It, the core focus of our business is shepherding people, you know, through their creator journey and meeting them where they are and getting them what they need. And that's kind of it. I, do, I love that. And and that's actually, you know, I, I, I also fall in that category of like knowing Lander as being that AI mastering engineer, sure. you know, and so I, I have found it interesting to, to see the development of all these things. And I love how you put it up like the creator journey and just really trying to cover all of those tracks and, uh, you know, really help out people. Now, I'm curious to know, like you, you did say you did allude to the fact that, you know, Lander isn't for everyone. So I'd love to talk about, you know, who who are you picturing this being for and who is it not for? Yeah, great. Well, I mean, I still make a, a big chunk of my uh, you know money mastering. So it's <laughs> I don't want mastering <laughs> to go away. I have I've incentivized to not eliminate mastering engineers, um, and which isn't the goal. Right. So so I guess I'll say this for starters. I mean, you know, a, a lot of people, if you don't, if you think Lander is the devil, it's totally all good, right? <laughs> um, the reality, though, is a lot of people who think that are usually older cats who are from a different era of the music industry and kind of, you know, fetishize that a little bit. And I respect that, right? The reality is that, you know, human mastering engineers are awesome. They're more versatile and they can do... Well, maybe not more versatile, but they can do more nuanced things, right? I think even on with Justin Perkins, who was on your podcast, who's an awesome mastering engineer, he was talking about some of the parts of mastering that are beyond just the sonic side of things, right? But if, if we're living in a singles world, right, and even, by the way, Lander can master albums, too, and does quite a, a good job of that, you know, there's a massive part of the music-making population that don't even own a microphone that costs $100, right? Like, the majority of the world that makes music. So the idea that they would spend, you know, God, $200 to get a mix done is crazy. And the idea they would spend $75 or $100 a track to get a song mastered by a good mastering engineer, right? Not just somebody who's going to half-ass it. It's just never going to happen, right? It's a fan. Of, it's great to say that they should, but you're not, that's, that's not reality, right? So... I would say probably 80 to 85% of people who make music cannot afford a mastering engineer. I've worked with artists who are like well-known artists who don't get their music mastered, right? Or they kind of do it themselves and half-ass it in a way that's not not great. So that's kind of where the lander and the the other, you know, companies in this in the the machine learning AI, you know, quote-unquote mastering space come in is to kind of fill that gap because there's this massive void where you have people who don't have the knowledge to master themselves, they don't have the gear, they don't have the room, and then you have people who can't afford it regardless, right? So what do you do for that those mi- literally tens of millions of people that are making music and that's that's where we kind of fall in. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, it definitely seems like it's it's um, 
it, it's catering more to kind of that earlier stage musician who's getting their career started and you know maybe yeah like you said maybe doesn't have that budget to 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 really get it going right well and i say that but there's a lot of labels that use it too man because you know the reality is and again Mastering is a very important part of the creative process, right? Mm-hmm. But mixing is more important. So if you have a budget and you've got to spend that budget, your best bet is to get a, the best possible mix engineer you can because it means the mastering engineer isn't honestly do. I mean, I just did a Mary Manicoan mix, uh, Many American mix last week. I mastered it. And there's not a whole hell of a lot you need to do to his or Pensado's or Derek Ali's mixes because they're badass mix engineers and they know how to mix loud. And you're really just there to QC and, you know, maybe do a little subtractive EQ and, and, and get things out to the world. So, like, the reality is if that's the focus, mastering's not magic, right? I think most people here know that. You're only working with the mix that you get. Just like a mix engineer is only working with the tracks that were recorded and you can only make things so good. So I think we see a lot of that, that, you know, and it goes to what you, something we were talking about earlier, where's Lander not awesome? And this goes for any AI. It's not awesome when the mix is terrible, Right. So if, if a mix is good, Lander's going to be great. Honestly, if the mix is got, you know, the, the bass is 60 B too hot. It's sibilant as hell. There's pops and clicks all over the place. Like you, there's no AI that's that's really going to effectively address that. You need a human to go in and be surgical on that. And really what you need is that person to go back and revisit their mix. Um, and we we're even, you know, putting up flags now where we try to tell people and point out where deficiencies are that we might not be able to deal with, but we can identify at least at scale uh, on the AI side of things so they can maybe go back and address that and point them towards educational materials and whatnot. Um, and it's why we started last thing. I, I realize I'm ranting a bit about this. It's why we started this lander network thing that we have, which as I mentioned earlier, it's where you can go hire a, a mixing engineer or a mastering engineer, or a vocal producer, or somebody just to give, give them 30 bucks and they'll give you feedback on your mix or your master and not do it for you, but really point you in the right direction. It's because, you know, you you need everything, right? Like the AI thing's good for some people. You need human touch with other people. You need a hybrid with for, for other people. We just want to kind of serve, you know, both sides of the market. I love that. I think that that's super useful. And thank you for clarifying, um, you know, when Lander works and when it doesn't and, and, you know, what things to be looking out for. Because I do think that is where a lot of the crit- criticisms come from, right? It's like people are like, oh, I threw this like crappy mix into Lander and it didn't really make it sound that much better. It's well, because you sent it something crappy, right? So like, you know, and and another thing you mentioned too that I, I think is really interesting is you'd kind of mentioned that, um, you know, there's not much to mastering in some ways, you know what I mean? Compa- comparatively to, to mixing, right? Like there, there obviously is a lot in mastering, but, but I think that, but I think that for years, mastering engineers have kind of had like this, uh, this like protective armor around the topic and, and treated it as if mastering was this like dark art that nobody really knows and shouldn't understand, but only these certain people know. And, and it's like, now we're starting to realize like, okay, wait a minute. Like it's, it's not <laughs> yeah. quite that way. You know? <laughs> it's like the internet opened up the doors and now people can see like what was happening behind the scenes. And it's like, Oh, that that's all you're doing. You know, a little EQ, some limiting this and that, you know? And so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's funny. So, you know, I definitely feel that, um, you know, services like Lander, it, it, it does make sense to to use it for, for all the reasons you mentioned there. And it makes sense to not use it for all the reasons you also mentioned too, right? It's like Yeah, it's totally true. I mean if you're if if you're M M&M and M and you're putting out your next record, you're not using Lander to put that out, right? You've got a budget to go hire Bob Ludwig or whoever you're gonna go hire and do that. Right. You know, Lander's not, you know, if you want to do vinyl mastering, right? Like we have a lot of people who master vinyl, uh, you know, spit vinyl out through the low setting on Lander, but it's not this, exactly the same approach as like I might take if I was a mastering engineer, right? So there's certainly, you know, there's reasons to use it, reasons not to use it. A lot of people, and the last thing here, don't ever release anything that was mastered with Lander, but they're some of our biggest users. So they're like film composers are a, hu- a big chunk of our users who are just people who have to churn out so many demos, so many revisions constantly as they're working on film cues use lander for that now when it comes time to actually get the the soundtrack master they come to me or they come to another mastering engineer but they're using lander for these all these different versions that come out you know in the meantime and then other people who just use it for mixed mixed versioning we call it which is i think justin may have mentioned this when he was on the podcast which is where like i just want to hear what my mix is going to sound like kind of when it goes to mastering. I may still go to a mastering engineer, but I can push my mix into Lander and see, you know, as it's processed differently 
kind of if there's something that I might need to adjust in the mix to better prepare it for mastering. And that's, yeah, that's another big use case of ours. So, and, and hell, we have people who do sound design for film who drop like 100 gunshot effects into Lander and just have those you know, treated like it's bizarre. Some of the stuff people use it for now, or they just use it for their drums in a mix. I mean, it's one of the interesting, I've said this before, but one of the interesting parts about working and building on technology is seeing how people use it in ways you'd never even envisioned, you know, and that's certainly been the case for us. That's very cool. What are some of the, what are some of the most creative uses that you've seen? Obviously you mentioned like the gunshots and the drum stuff, but you know, anything else that comes to mind? Yeah, that's been interesting. I mean, people intentionally like, destroying their mixes i mean intentionally clipping the hell out of them intentionally you know just you know limiting the whatever jacking the bass up doing crazy things and pushing into lander as a sound design tool to see how it can address that and then using that in a track so like samples and stuff which is another really interesting one like i trying to and this is i'm actually a fan of this trying to break the lander engine right for the purpose of sound design i mean that's the thing i learned from adrian blue from trent Reznor, and all these people is like find a piece of technology and make it do something it wasn't intended to do and something cool might come out of it we've had people do that so it's kind of god it's all over the map these days but but yeah i mean people who just use it for guitars as an example but not on their master mix so yeah, that's super cool and i never thought about it that way but yeah you know having we, with you having that access to see kind of what kind of uses people are using I'm sure it's uh, it just opens your eyes to like all these sorts, all these new things. Um, and I had another mastering engineer on my podcast a while ago who who also has his own platform that is in somewhat direct competition to, to Lander. But um, but he he framed it as if, you know, same sort of thing that you mentioned where you can kind of reverse engineer the mastering process and see how from a mixing standpoint, you can really shape your mix to, to work better for a master. And, you know, that that. I think that that's a really important learning curve. And, you know, even from my own experience, and I'm sure you can relate to this as well, if, if, you're, if you've ever had songs mastered by a professional mastering engineer, you, you you start to realize like, oh, that's what they do. That's that's yes, exactly. That's the kind of stuff I need to be looking out for. And this is why they had a, had trouble mastering my track. So maybe the next time around, I won't do this and that kind of thing. You really kind of see it from a different lens. And it, it is a really cool learning opportunity to to have mastering done to your projects and, and reverse engineer that. Yeah. And even even if you and you yourself want to learn a bit more about mastering, like even if you're not necessarily going to eventually going to go to another engineer, having like get to the point where you can make your stuff sound better than you think Lander sounds, right? Use Lander as a reference and, and go beyond that. We have people who do, they have people who will stay with us forever. I mean, we have, f- what, 5 million users or something at this point. It's crazy. Some of those are love Lander, are committed to it, understand how to mix uh, kind of for the, so that Lander will do the best job on it. Others of those people will graduate on some projects and go to a mastering engineer, which is awesome. And others will kind of try to reverse engineer it, as you said, and learn how to master themselves, which is also awesome. So it's like it's interesting to see how people approach it differently depending upon, you know, how much time they have, their proclivity to want to learn the engineering side of things or to hire, you know, humans to do it. So it's it's all of it's good as far as we're concerned. Yeah, for sure. So then in your opinion, like, you know, where do you see this AI technology going as like a next step? Yeah, now this is an interest. That's an interesting question because, you know, it's funny, right? So I I kind of earlier I was talking about, you know, when I first started at Lander, you know, I was I was basically putting a big target on my back (laughs) as an engineer coming on board with a company kind of doing this, right? Because a lot of people just don't they see the things the way things were, and they don't see the way things could be right. And they have their own their thing. And that's cool. But with no new technology would get built. We've never had digital technology, no DAWs have gotten built if we let tape cats tell us what what should and shouldn't be happening. And I love tape. But those are not necessarily the people who should be innovating uh, or or have the capacity to do that. Now, there's problems with that, though, because like, okay, so Landers came in and and it's kind of, you know, in the mastering space, not trying to replace mastering engineers, but trying to serve, you know, a massive part of the market that unless mastering engineers are going to charge five bucks, they're not serving. Um, Fine. That was controversial. It still is controversial today, certainly for some people, but way less because what's happened is that that AI has been applied to other more sensitive areas of the music creation process that touch more people. I'm specifically talking about the AI composition side of things, right? So, like, AI mastering and mixing will be built into most major DAWs in the next five to seven years. So, I mean, I think everybody's probably aware of that, but it's actively being worked on, um, and not by us, by the way. 
but it will be a thing where it's just native to DAWs, right? You'll be able to get a basic mix. I mean, I always already thought this would be a thing, but it's taken a lot longer. If I want a Rolling Stones mix or a, you know, a whoever mix, a Metallica mix, I can get the approximation of that, at least a place to start in a DAW with a button press. So uh, that's, that's, put that on your radar. Um, that's happening. You, you actually, you think that like AI mixing is going to be a thing then, eh? Oh, I don't think it's going to happen. I know for a fact it's, it's a thing. Yeah. I mean, the writing's on the wall. Obviously, if you have like the mastering step, it's like, well, the next step is going to be getting in, getting into the weeds and mixing, right? Well, so. I, I mean, it already exists to some degree. I mean, look at what Isotope's doing with Neutron and things like that, right? If it were that functionality built in natively, see, this is what the problem with a lot of the machine learning stuff. It's not native to the DAW. It's either like Lander's a cloud-based service, right? Or a desktop app that connects to the cloud, or it's some third-party plugin, right? There's some really interesting third-party composition tools like, you know, that uh, Captain Chords and Orb and, you know, Ava's in the cloud and all this other stuff that's going on, but it's not integrated directly in the DAW, so it's not it's not as convenient or accessible to the most people. That's the next step where that stuff will be um, either licensed or built by some of the DAW manufacturers, so that the tracks can talk to each other, right? And they can do a lot of the stuff that say Isotope is doing and others are doing, but but built in there anyway. So that's that's probably the lowest hanging fruit I see uh, for for AI and music production, for better or worse. Now, does that mean it's going to replace mix engineers? No, because all it's going to do is give you a starting point that you can then move from, or people who would never hire a mixing engineer will have something they can work from and reverse engineer and blah, blah, blah. I'm less threatened by that than I am the AI composition side of things. Because it's one thing to have a tool, take an Orb Composer suite, um, or like I mentioned, Captain Chords, ones that people may know about because they're plugins, right? That allow you to kind of get the basics of an idea up and running. Um, and, you know, plugins that talk to each other. And if I change the baseline, it changes the melody and the chord progression across other ones. That's that's cool because I'm actively involved in the creation process. Um, where that gets challenging for people is when humans aren't involved in the creative process. So if I'm if I'm making an ad for TV and I drop my my 30 second video into I mean pick one Dynascore, which is a company, cloud-based AI composition company, and that that their software analyzes that video, lets me put in maybe a couple of points where where you know, I think there should be a crescendo or there's an explosion or something like that. And it will just compose music and I can shuffle through that in any genre I want and I'm done. Like there is never a music creative involved in the process. They're specific. I mean, it says it on their site, like you're your own composer, replace composers. Right. So I think that scares people a lot more now than certainly than the AI mastering thing. When we're, we're taking the human out of the creative part at the inception of an idea. And it's not like, you know, is that going to replace pop stars and, and rock bands? Not necessarily at the moment, but it certainly is going to hurt on the sync side of things. And it's certainly going to hurt in some of the oppor- other opportunities. There are important income streams for people trying to make a career in music. So it's a whole interesting time that we're heading into uh, on that side of things. That's really interesting. And, and you're right. Like, you know, with all this technology and the advancements of it, it really does have a lot of potential to in some ways, it's going to broaden the music industry and it's going to make it more accessible. And I think in that sense, it's really cool. And in some other ways, it's going to, you know, it'll be like the equivalent of Napster coming up again. You know, it's like it's going to be just it's going to be it's, it's going to be sort of like that where it's going to shake up the industry in a way that hasn't it hasn't seen in a long time. And and people are going to have to adapt to that to some degree. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's hard to speculate on exactly what the effect of some of this stuff is going to be. Maybe it's not that big of a deal, right? Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's a significant change in 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 the way that things work. It's yeah, it's it's really interesting. Maybe it change I mean, you could look at it, you know, if you want to look at it in a positive light, maybe if everybody uh, who has a cell phone can push a button, and we're already, this already exists, I guess. But if can push a button and make a, a trap beat that sounds amazing, um, and everyone knows that they can do that, maybe when they go, you know, listen to the radio or they listen to Spotify, they're going to look for something that's that's beyond what they can do on their own, right? And maybe that's going to evolve their taste, and we'll get some different genres popping up, and you know, a revert, you know, a reversion to maybe some musicality that I think is missing from popular music. Who knows, right? But I mean, you have applications like Boomi now, which is it has tons of users, right? Where and, and actual artists use this too, where you can go on Boomi, B O O M Y, and hit a button and generate a song and make a couple of very gen- you'd have to know nothing about music very general curation selections and release that song to Spotify immediately. You don't know if 
three-year-old can do it. Um, and there are millions of songs. I mean, God, they just published, I think, eight million songs or something in the past couple of years from that app alone. And uh, some popular artists use that, too, because, like, in between their tentpole music releases that they really focus on and invest in, they just, it's a content treadmill these days, right? So they just want to have, you know, lo-fi beats coming out and things like that. So they'll use some of these tools to just kind of crank content out. So it's very interesting to see how some of this stuff is used between professionals down to amateurs and people who aren't even amateurs, people who have never even thought about making music before. And that's where a lot of this is headed. That's, that's super interesting. And yeah, it, it, I do find it so interesting how the technology is becoming easier and easier for people to to get access to. I remember um, someone I know, their kids go to a school and, you know, in elementary school, they had a, a music tech class and they, they had kids in like grade three who were making like crazy MIDI songs. And I was like, how is this possible? You know, but, but it's, but it's cause the technology is there. And, and, you know, even, even just with a simple thing like GarageBand, for example, just being accessible on people's Macs, it's like people are starting to experiment with it having fun, you know, trying different loops. So it, 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 it does, I, I do find it very fascinating and it's kind of interesting too, because earlier you had mentioned the idea of like the, the creative process of music and, you know, mastering has its own creative process. Mixing does the songwriting does. And it's hard to argue whether it's, it's going to be increasing the creative creativity of music by, by simplifying it. Or if it's taking away, I think to like a traditional musician, it may be taking away some of the creativity because now other people have the, have those skills that they've worked so hard for. But at the same time, now more people are going to have that creativity to, you know, just experiment with something that they never knew they could do before. Yeah. And I mean, that'll lead to all sorts of new stuff being created, some of which will be terrible and some of which might be innovative and different because people, you know, are coming at it from a different angle, I suppose, could be cool. And But it's also interesting. I have to check myself all the time because I am an old grumpy dude. Um, and, you know, I'm like, oh, these new tools let people do stuff that I had to bust my ass to learn or like they're making crappy music and all this really like privileged, condescending shit that you hear people say. And I can get caught up in that as well. But like, man, you know, people hated jazz when it came out. They hated rock when they came out. They hated synthesizers and drum machines. And remember, plugins were never going to be worth the crap. All the stuff that were cheat codes, right, that people looked at is like, oh, you're not real if you're using digital or you're, you know, ugh, terrible or, or quantization or batch fade. You could look batch fades. You could look at all this stuff that if you really think about it is kind of semi-automating or replacing something that came before or is a quote simplified version that is open to a different market, right? We're just in a different phase of that these days. A lot of the stuff that we're already so used to, we don't think about in that ways, but those things were disruptive in their time. Um, and now we're seeing that at a different scale, admittedly, particularly with the AI and machine learning aspect of it, but it's kind of just an evolution of stuff that's been happening forever. Man, I, I just love your transparency and honesty about all of these topics, because I, I do think, you know, there, there are probably people that are going to listen to this and think like, Lander, like, oh, that, that taking away from technology or taking away from creativity, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I love that you're you're tackling all of both sides of the conversation. And, uh, and I, th I think people need to hear that, you know? Yeah, I mean, shit, man, I'm not a salesman. I'm an audio engineer. You know what I mean? I'm a music geek. Like, so... <laughs> Like, you, I don't think I don't think anyone is served by coming at any topic from an inauthentic angle. And I think that goes for both sides. That comes from my side of the fence, working on some of the tech development, some things that people may deem to be disruptive or controversial. And I think that should go for people who are kind of looking at the market and what companies are doing and judging that maybe uh, it's it's a big part of this. And I had a conversation the other day with somebody about this and they made a really good point. Um, he, this is a, a pretty well-known producer. He said, you know, I don't care about Lander. Uh, I don't see Lander as good or bad. I care about the people behind the technology. Like, you can use any technology for good or bad, but what's the intent of the people behind it? Are you trying to literally wipe out all mixing and mastering engineers? If that's not the goal, like, tell me what it is. Tell me what the intent is. And he's, he's not wrong. I mean, I have, I have a problem. You know, I'm not, I love technology, but I'm not embracing of all of it. I have my thresholds that I won't go beyond when it comes to companies, you know, specifically, you know, going after segments of the market that I don't think necessar are necessarily appropriate with AI and machine learning, like actively trying to say that they're going to replace composers and stuff. I'm not a huge fan of some of that. Um, anyway, so yeah, I think a lot, a lot of any kind of tech for everybody listening to this, it's like, find out what the intent is, find out who's behind it, because that's really going to, you know, dictate what, what's, what it's used for. Well, that brings up an interesting point. And I was curious to know, you know, 
because you are coming from a, a perspective of being an audio engineer yourself, and now you're consulting these companies that do have the potential to stir up the pot and, you know, that are in some ways causing controversy between like the future of tech and, and the existing engineers, you know, do you, do you ever find yourself like feeling hesitant to suggest things that like, or like the th things that you're holding close to your heart that you're like, I really don't want an AI company doing this. I, I, I mean, feel free to answer that however you want, but no, that's a good question. Um, not really. There's, there are, there's just certain things I don't tend to get involved in. You know what I mean? So like, I, I leave that for other people because it's a little, yeah, it muddies the waters a little bit too much for me. And I've kind of alluded to what some of that is already, but you know, it's also interesting though, man, even, we, we were talking about some of the potential positives to come out of a lot of that, a lot of this. And let's just frame it through the lens of being an audio engineer or mixing, mastering, that kind of side of things, right? Like, you know, the more you could look at like, okay, music creation is, again, another step of democratization in the music creation space is anybody can kind of do it. You know, the reality of that is, is that if we can open them, if the market does open up to a segment that typically would have never considered making music, a subset, a percentage of those people are going to get hooked and move on to learn the more professional tools and maybe learn to play a real instrument and do stuff that will require my services and your services and the services of musicians and producers, right? So there's ultimately going to be part of that funnel that feeds into the more professional side of the industry. It's more about how, like, the music consuming community, the fans out there, how they separate what quote unquote professionals do from kind of the AI generated stuff, right? That's, that's what I, is kind of nebulous to me at this point. But as far as, you know, AI in general, making more work for all of us and not taking it away, I think we've already seen that. I think shit, hell with mastering, not to get back on that, but more people know about what mastering is right now than have ever known about it. And that's because of not just Lander, but other companies kind of in this isotope and other companies in the space that have really kind of opened that door. And I, I get more work now as a mastering engineer than I did 10 years ago, right? And there's reasons for that. But I think part of it is people actually give more of a shit about mastering. Um, so, and it's not voodoo anymore. It's not this dark art that they just are afraid to approach. So, they, you know, we'll, we'll see how this plays out across various verticals in the creation process, but it's going to be a really interesting next five to 10 years. I know that. <laughs> I love that, man. I think that that's a really interesting point to bring up that you've had more mastering work lately than you ever have. And, and that's even with all this technology out there. So, you know, it really does go to show that like a, a properly trained engineer is still going to have work. Oh, never. It's never going away, ever. Like, if you are good at what you do, you will always have a career, at least in, at least in my lifetime, uh, a career doing what you're doing. More content's being made, you know, right now than in any other. More content's being right, made right now than any, uh, all mastering engineers or mixing engineers in the world could deal with, right? There's more work out there uh, than there are engineers. You just got to find it. That, that, that's a really good point. And it goes back to sort of what we were talking about earlier of just, you know, how there are so many different avenues for work in the industry. And, you know, content creation itself is like there's, there's a lot of need for audio based people in that industry, you know, and, and making content and, you know, helping people doing that, that kind of thing. So that, that's just another avenue right there, too. Man, I, I love this. I, you know, I think it's such a good conversation to have just to, to really show like, this isn't killing the industry necessarily, you know, like it's, it's actually like adding some, some more opportunities for people. And, and I like the fact that you said like mastering is just building awareness to the stuff to, so that the mastering engine, the, the people that are pursuing it as a career are still getting more work because now people know about it more, you know? So, yeah. And, and I, I want to be clear cause I don't want to sound, you know, like I'm like completely preaching this glass half full sort of a thing. Does it mean that there's some mastering work that's been lost, let's just say because of Lander or because of O's? Of course, right? I'm just saying that I think I, what, what I've seen over the past five to six years is it's been somewhat balanced too by uh, people, you know, who would have never used mastering using something like Lander and graduating beyond that to actual mastering engineers or us pushing mastering engineers from the higher. So I think I think it's a balance, right? So AI stuff is going to remove some jobs from a certain segment of the, the engineering and creative community. I do think, though, it will be balanced with, with more work that's added as a result. So anyway, just to clarify that. Oh, I appreciate that. And, you know, I, I think it just goes to show, like, you know, this this industry has always been ever evolving and and it's always adapting and we have to get used to that. That's it's going to happen with the writing is on the wall that new things are going to come out that we're going to have to figure out how to work with. And you either go with the flow or you don't. And, you, you know, you, you lose those gigs. And 
who knows? Like, you know, I, I'm just making this up off the top of my head, but, you know, maybe we'll reach a point where, you know, Lander's technology or whoever, whoever's technology is so good that this, this, this becomes a new sound. You know, it's like when people looked at auto-tune originally, they thought like, what is this garbage tool that corrects people's voices? And, you know, and like, how, how dare they? And now it's become an accepted sound. And it's like part of like genre. It's like a, like kind of an identifying factor of certain, certain people's sound, you know? And it's like people have just embraced it. And so who knows, maybe one day, like this automated stuff will, will become something people are used to hearing. And maybe that's just, you know, maybe that's something people like, and then there'll be some other offshoot of that, you know? Who knows? That's what I say. It's, it's going to be so crazy, you know, where, where all this lands. And God, now, yeah, and you you sprinkle in, you know, the metaverse and Web3 and, and working in Atmos now and all this other stuff that's out there. I mean, there's, yeah, all of that is, is or job opportunities, you know, that, that didn't exist a few years ago. For sure. Man, I love that. And so speaking of new technologies, I know we've talked a lot about Lander, but um, you're also focusing on your on your mastering side of things. You're, you're doing a lot more Atmos work as well. And I'm curious to talk about that because that is a new technology that a lot of people still don't understand. And I'll admit, I don't, I don't know a lot about it either. You know, like I, I know of it, but I've never worked in it personally. And, and I think there's a lot for people to to learn about getting into it because it's 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 becoming a new thing that that people should be aware of. Yeah, well, this is a whole other nut to crack, but Atmos is interesting, right? So to be clear, I got into working in Atmos maybe like four or five months ago. So, you know, meaning that I, I built an Atmos studio with my, my partner, Matt Geiler, who's a very well-known film trailer. He does like Spider-Man No Way Home and Venom and all these ma- massive movies. Uh, so we kind of built a studio together where I'm kind of the music professional and he's kind of the kind of the immer- he's been working in immersive for 20 years. Right. So he's a master at that and Atmos and all of this stuff. So we kind of joined forces because uh, I've not worked in immersive very much in my career. I've been a kind of a stereo guy like a lot of people. Right. So it's been a huge learning curve and it's just it's just really interesting, right? I mean, so now when you go to get your music mixed, you can you know, you get your stereo mix and if you want, you can add on an Atmos mix, right? Which is going to be a mix that has, you know, at, at least, you know, mixed to seven speakers around you, four in the ceiling and one or two subwoofers, whatever. There's various, you know, versions of that. Um, and at first artists and my, me, when I, when I think about that, I'm like, wait a second, who the hell has that many speakers in their house <laughs> to listen <laughs> to this music that I'm mixing in this like specialized environment, right? Um, which is the big challenge of Atmos for people, I think. It's like, okay, so I'm going to spend this money to have my music presented in this way. How is anybody ever going to hear that? Okay, so somebody has a sound bar maybe with some satellite speakers, right? All right they're going to get a kind of a version of that Atmos mix, uh, which could be very cool. But we all know most people are walking around listening to music on headphones and AirPods, right? So that's that's what 80, even Dolby, right, who the inventors of Atmos uh, will say that I think 85% of people listen on headphones of consumers. So what the hell does this mean to them, right? So that's where you see things like, you know, the binaural rendering of an Atmos mix. Like, what? how does it translate to headphones? Can I hear things behind my head? Can I hear things above me? And that's the most challenging part, not, not to go off on a tangent on this, but of mixing an Atmos. Mixing in an immersive room, when you're sitting in a studio with 12 or 13 speakers, it's easy to mix in that, right? Stereo is hard, right? Trying to cram something between two speakers and carving stuff up with EQ and compressing things and trying to create this illusion of depth and the phantom center and all of that is incredibly difficult. If I can just pan something behind me to a speaker, that's pretty simple, right? The challenge to me with Atmos is making that translate to headphones. Um, and I, we that's been our biggest struggle is to realize all sorts of, I mean, it's the Wild West as far as Atmos goes right now. So everybody is coming up with their own strategy about how to do this. But but making something that translate in, it translates in a room or on a soundbar or in a car that has Atmos and also will give somebody an additional experience to the stereo on headphones. And that that is possible. I mean, good Atmos mixes uh, translate binaurally to kind of a spatialized, more open version of, of what the stereo is. And some of them, if they're not done right, they sound terrible. And there's a mixture of both. You can go on Apple Music right now and hear some amazing Atmos mixes and hear some trash. Uh, so it's, it's, it's the Wild West. But it's a very interesting space to kind of delve into. Last thing, because you can play around with Atmos even if you don't have an Atmos studio, right? You won't be able to hear it in a proper room, but you can certainly hear what it sounds like on headphones, all the stuff I've just been talking about. I mean, as, as a lot of people listening may know, that's built into Nuendo. It's built into Logic. Uh, you know, the, the Dolby renderer that you can go get a 
a, a fairly lengthy demo of connects to Pro Tools and any other DAW that supports Atmos mixing. So there's a lot to play around with. It's not that complicated to get it set up and get going, but like a lot of things, it's it takes a lot of hours to perfect. For sure. So for people who are interested in getting into Atmos or at least experimenting with it, I mean, you alluded, alluded to the fact that people can get started with just a simple set of headphones. Yep. You know, what what else is needed for them to, to try this out and to experiment with it dude that's pretty much it you need a DAW that supports mixing in atmos right which a lot do and then you need either the so what, what so i work in pro tools as an example if i'm mixing in atmos right so i have pro tools now what's really cool about this for any of you who use pro tools is that you used to have to have pro tools ultimate like the expensive version of pro tools which is now called you know as of a month ago pro tools flex they changed the name again um, but now in the standard version of Pro Tools, right, you have the ability to mix Atmos. So you don't have to have anything special, just the regular version of Pro Tools. And you have to have the Dolby Atmos renderer um, program. So it's a piece of software you download. It sits on your desktop and you connect that through a driver. Very easy to do in your playback engine to this renderer. So you're basically streaming music out of Pro Tools into this rendering program. And that goes to your headphones and that's it. Um, and it's, it's might sound complicated. It is like literally two or three button clicks to get that up and running. Um, and then, you know, just learning the basics of what objects are and some of the stuff that the Atmos terminology. But I have to say, it's like in an, in, I would say in a day or an afternoon, you could probably go through any, and even pro, the, the Avid website has a lot of information. Logic's website has a lot of information about this. You can get set up and start, start playing around and probably make some great stuff and some terrible stuff, but that's kind of how you got to start, right? So you don't need a lot, I guess is my point. So as far as that, because um, you mentioned that the DAWs already have the ability to, to mix within it, but then you need this Dolby Atmos renderer plugin. Is that something that is like a free thing or is that something you have to, yeah. to purchase to get into it? Or So and to, to be clear, it's not a plugin. It's a separate application. There gotcha, are plugins okay. that you can use that are Dolby related that, that can talk to that program, but it's always going to be a separate application. So if you don't, some DAWs, and I mentioned this earlier, have it built in. So like Logic recently just came out where the render is built into Logic. If you own Logic... Up, update to the latest version, you have everything you need self-contained within Logic. Nuendo is the same way. Um, but most DAWs don't have that yet. So you have to go get the separate piece of software. And I think, I th don't quote me on this, but I think you get like a 90-day free trial. So like try that out and you got tons of time. And I want to say it's 300 bucks to buy. So... Um, but you got plenty of time to kind of futz around with it. Um, and I think it's one of those things that you will continue to see since atmos doesn't appear to be going anywhere um you'll see it built into more i won't mention names built into more of these daws so it just comes free effectively with the daw but right now that's only the case for a few for sure and then so that that's how you would get started with it you know on a, on a super basic level just having the headphones but then i'm assuming like people who are doing this professionally they're they're starting to build out like their seven point you know the, whatever whatever the big systems are right yeah they are and here this is actually interesting one of the things that i've found working in this space is that so you have people like me right who have an app proper atmos studio which is as you might imagine freaking expensive to build and dolby has to come you have to get on dolby's list to come tune it and to get listed on the dolby website some some major labels won't will not work with you unless you're listed on dolby's website and you're a dolby approved okay so like forget about even mixing for you know universal music group as an example they are going to vet the hell out of you um so but you know if you're just an independent artist and you want to do it on headphones and release it great the problem of course then is it may sound good on headphones but it may sound abysmal if it's ever played in a movie theater or in a you know on a sound bar or in god forbid in a proper atmos room so what a lot of people are doing is they're doing it themselves on headphones in their room all right so they don't have all the speakers and then they send it to an atmos mastering engineer to just qc it so basically, listen to it in a proper room and just give them feedback to say, nope, this is perfect, you're good, or man, you really need to pull this or that down, or maybe I can do that as the mastering engineer, make those adjustments on my end, um, and do that. So it costs less than sending it to a, an actual mixing engineer, because um, it, of course, takes less time. But you still are kind of, you know, protected against putting something out there that's going to fall apart. Because, um, of course, the whole idea of mastering, right, is things should translate no matter where you listen to them. And this is just another extension of that in the Atmos space. Of course, yeah. So you had mentioned the idea of needing to be Dolby approved or D Dolby certified or whatever. Is that 
you need that in order to be to be put on like the Apple Apple Music, like in their spatial audio. Is that something you need or can can anyone who doesn't have that still make mixes that get approved for Apple Music and all the distributors? This is so complicated. So like this has changed several times. Anybody who's listening to this who's who's involved in Atmos in any way has probably got gray hair because of this. So there, <laughs> so th- there used to be a certification program, like an actual certification that you had to go through to get a, like a stamp that says you can do Dolby Music. Um, that doesn't exist. They got rid of that. Okay, that still exists for theatrical and home theater Dolby mix rooms. Like you actually get a little thing that says that you're approved for that, and that's required to work with Netflix and people like that, right? But for music, they removed that, um, which I think was probably smart. Now, um, so anybody can go. Mi- so to your question, you right now, you personally could go download the software to do this, put a mix in Atmos, send it to Apple Music, and it's you're good. Right, it's going to show up. It's going to play back in Apple Spatial. Um, there are no hurdles that you have to jump over to to qualify for this, that, or the other. Where those hurdles apply is with some of the major labels. If you happen to be working with them, where they have a quality standard that they're trying to implement, since Dolby's kind of not doing that anymore. So what they'll say is, it's great, good for you that you spent a hundred thousand dollars or whatever you spent building an Atmos facility, but that's not enough. We want Dolby to have given you the thumbs up. There needs to be like a tuned room. Even though there's not a certification anymore, there's kind of this like unwritten certification. So for us, they really wanted us to be listed on Dolby's site. I think there's 450 studios on there internationally at this point. Um, and to do that, Dolby wanted to tune the room and all this other stuff I mentioned. So getting into, getting into the weeds a bit here. So it's still, again, man, it's the wild, wild west when it comes to this kind of stuff. But long story short, anybody listening to this can go kind of mess around and create an Atmos mix and, and you can put it out and no one's going to stop you. Yeah, for sure. I love that. And I think that because it's becoming more accessible, I think a lot of these uh, these kind of rules or, or standards that people are expecting, you know, a lot of that will probably get swept under the rug at some point because people will realize like, oh, there's you don't need to have all these things to make amazing sounding mixes. You know, it's like it's like people like going to back in the day, people had to go to a big studio to get a good a good mix. And now it's like, yeah, someone in the basement can do a great mix as well. So it's becoming more accepted, right? Yeah, we're getting there. The Atmos thing is still tricky to be able to do something. It's the translation issue, man, between binaural and the actual room that's crazy. And, and think about, you know, I'm guessing people listening to this might be thinking the same thing I was, which is still like, do we really need this? Like, really? I mean, it's just kind of listening on headphones. It's kind of like stereo, but enhanced a little bit. Like, what's going on? Well, the reality of this is you got to look a little farther ahead to a lot of the VR, particularly the AR stuff, AR glasses, the need for immersive audio that shifts kind of as you move within a space, metaverse stuff, that's where Apple and a lot of companies are trying to amass. Uh, and I'm not giving any, you know, secrets away here. They haven't told me this, but I, you know, this is the, the case. Just, you know, amassing a content library that will be readily available when they, as they continue to move into that space. It's just like mastered for iTunes, right? They wanted to amass a 24-bit content library so they could then put that, you know, as, a, as another tier or another incentive for their streaming platform, and they did. And this is a comparable to that. Yeah. Uh, th- and that's great. And, you know, it, it's uh, yeah, you can kind of like the more we're talking this over, the more I'm realizing just like you can really see the trajectory of the music industry and where people are going with it and like how all of these new technologies are going to come together and utilize music just as part of these other immersive experiences. And like you said, like the AR AR stuff and all all that stuff, I, you know, there there is it's not just going to be people listening to music anymore. It's going to be people experiencing music. It's an experience. My God, look at Roblox, man. Like, look at Spot, you know, look at, uh, if, you don't, if you're not familiar with a company called Splash, uh, they used to be called Popgun. Um, you know, building experiences in, uh, I'm just using Roblox as an example, but it could be any meta, any metaverse fortnite type thing where people can interact with music in a different way. Spotify just had their first installation in Roblox where you can go actually kind of engage with music. Uh, you know, we're used to doing that in things like Beat Saber and, you know, some of these kind of music games, but where it really music changes dynamically in response to a lot of things, whether it's, you know, an action of yours or it's your heart rate or your mood or all these different things. I mean, the adaptive music space 
there's a whole other angle to this that I'm kind of messing with. So there's there's just so much crazy stuff happening. And you, you made a really good point a minute ago. If you want to see where things are heading, don't look at what consumers are asking for. Looking what, look at what companies are doing, right? So like the, the the Atmos thing is a good example. Do you think that the the you know the average person is sitting on their couch being like, man, I wish I had you know 13 speakers and could listen to music that way? No, like immersive music has failed many times over the years. Um, because it's not really applicable to people because people don't sit in one place and listen to music, right? So it's this binauralization of it. It's kind of, it's again, it's attaching it to visuals, which is so important. And now that we're at a stage technology-wise where we're looking at augmented reality glasses and more in the VR stuff and things that are portable, like now it starts to make more sense. Therefore, Dolby, Apple, others are pushing it because that's what we're going to start seeing. So consumers will adopt this technology these companies are making. They're not just relying on what the consumer wants because that's not where innovation typically comes from. For sure. Yeah, there's a, a great Henry Henry Ford quote that I'm probably going to butcher, but he said if, if he had asked people what they wanted back in the day, they would have said faster horses, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's true, man. It's like you can't, I mentioned this earlier, like God bless, you know, traditional studio cats. Like they're not the people you go to to see where the industry is going to head. You know what I mean? Like you need people who can kind of see, or maybe they're good at that too, but a lot of people aren't, right? They're just used to, they got their head down. They're used to doing what they're doing. And uh, it, yeah, it would just be that until the end of time if, if they had their druthers. So we, we can't you know, typically look to those type of people for, for where things are heading. Yeah. And to also kind of tie back to what we talked about earlier, you know, this is just yet again, another area in music that isn't the traditional thing that people can start immersing themselves into, excuse the pun, and, and uh, you know, starting to, to make money off this. I, I was actually having a great conversation with a, another well-known engineer not too long ago, and we were talking about Atmos because he had just recently converted his studio and he kind of described it as like this gold rush right now with all the labels. He, <laughs> he's totally right. Because he was like, he's like every label is like whether they know it or not, like they're they're just they're all in right now on on Atmos and what this could potentially be used for. Like people don't have the clarity on what this is going to be used for yet, but he's like they're all just freaking out and just trying to like hire whoever they can to get these Atmos mixes done. And he's like, yeah, like I'm busier than ever doing Atmos. Like sure, new technology, like you know whatever, I'll take it on. And he's keeping busy. So it's it's true. And you know. It's, it's really interesting. I've talked to some Atmos, some well-known Atmos engineers who behind the scenes are a little bit skeptical about the format, but it's like, you know, if a label's knocking on your door and saying they're going to pay you this many thousands of dollars for a mix and here's, you know, 500 mixes to start, what do you do? You know what I mean? Do you say, nope, I don't think this is innovation. I don't like, yeah, it's like you got to make a decision at some point. So that's why you see so many engineers pursuing this because there's so much damn work in it right now. Um, and yeah, there is. It's, it is like a gold rush. He's totally right. Whoever said that. Yeah. Well, for everyone listening to this, I, you know, I hope that you're realizing that there are, there's just so much potential out there. And sometimes it's just thinking outside of the box and, and really adapting and, and just moving with the times and, and not being that cranky old sound guy that, you know, doesn't doesn't ever accept new technology. It's, you, you have to get with it. And uh, it's it's really there's a lot of money to be made in this industry, despite the fact that people think there isn't, you know, and, and you just have to go looking for the, the different avenues for it. Yeah. And, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with being cranky old sound guy. A portion of me is cranky old sound guy. So I don't want <laughs> to sound like I'm, you know, talking shit about people like that. I totally get it. We're all cranky about certain things make all of us cranky in our own ways. Certain things are off-putting to all of us in different ways. So it's okay. It doesn't certainly no need to go embrace everything that's happening. But what you said is really true is that you know if you want to make a living uh if you want to exist on the long in the long term right and have a career you do kind of have to be a little bit more open-minded to this type of stuff hit up some of these companies hit up jesus a last example of this there's a company called the sandbox which is now pretty significant they're a metaverse gaming platform and um and i hit them up a cold call like year and a half ago, more, oh my God, almost two years ago now, hit him up and was like, hey, what are you doing? You know, I didn't know anything about the metaverse or about blockchain or anything like that back then. And this is a blockchain-based metaverse gaming situation before Snoop Dogg was involved in it and all these other you know companies that have come on board. And I was like, do you need music? Like, I don't know anything about what you're doing, but like, I can make music. Like, w w what are we doing here? And they were like, yeah, no one's reached out to us. You know, we're a perfect example. We're focused on the visuals on the gaming engine. We haven't even thought about music at this point because a lot of people, anyone who's worked in film and television knows 
clothes, a lot of the last thing on a lot of these people's minds is music. So you can be proactive and approach some of these people. And yeah, they were like, come on, like, let's like bring on a team. Let's do the music for this platform. And it's again, something I'd never done before. You know, I've mastered music for games, but not made it and did pretty well, brought some friends in and they're now continuing to do music. And I'm kind of, you know, mixing and overseeing from a distance and it's been great. But that's just like reaching out to something that seemed a little weird to me and a little unfamiliar and, and they weren't used to music cats reaching out to them. I love that story. And I love the the courage in that story of just like, I don't know what I'm doing with this company, but can I help you? <laughs> like, you know, it's like, that's amazing. I love that. I love that. Like, you know, it's something you haven't done before, but just going all in on it to see if, if it's worth exploring or, or, you know, if there's work there. So, man, uh, Daniel, this has been a really fun conversation. I love just hearing kind of, for, I'm, I love hearing from people that are in the tech space and seeing where the potential is for the future of music and how how it's it how the industry is shifting and you know to hear from someone who has had that traditional role in music to some degree and and just the fact that you're you're help pushing it forward it's it just it's just, just such a cool conversation to have and uh great to great to hear and, and learn from so so thank you for for taking the time to to do this today appreciate it dude thank you for having me i was a, i realized it's a bit wide-ranging <laughs> conversation but i hope it was useful and just everybody man get out there hit me up by the way i'm on i don't use social media much but i'm on all over linkedin that's kind of been you know one of the secrets to my success is that platform feel free to pester me about anything questions you know whatever i'm, I'm always around so that was my conversation with daniel roland and i really enjoyed that i thought that it's a really important chat to have and all of us who are looking to make a career in this industry, we need to be looking ahead. We need to be looking at the technologies that are out there right now that are potentially disrupting, I use that in quotes, the industry, because a lot of those technologies out there are moving the industry forward. And we do have to be aware of those things, how they are affecting the landscape of the music industry right now. And we do need to embrace some of these things to some degree, because there may be a future with these technologies and we do have to get used to it. And I think that when you talk about AI in music, a lot of people get really defensive about it. And I think a lot of that is heavily rooted in people just wanting to be traditional and not wanting to embrace change. But the fact is, the industry is always changing and you can either move with it or you don't. And you can be left behind if you don't. Now, personally, do I think that some of these technologies that we talked about here today are at a pro level and that everyone should be using these? No, I don't. And, you know, I think it's like Daniel and I talked about here where there are applications for some people for some of this stuff. And then there are some people who are at a level above where this technology is at right now. So depending on which side of the fence you're on, you might want to use it or you may not want to. So the choice is yours. But, you know, again, you do need to always be thinking about what technologies exist now and where are things heading. And also the fact that some of this technology is in its infancy stage, and it might not be the greatest right now, but as technology evolves, this technology might get better and better, and we might reach a pro level with it. So again, this is why we need to be paying attention to it and having these kinds of conversations. So that's really why I wanted to have Daniel on this podcast, because I think that he brings us a fresh perspective. And I have to say that by the end of this conversation, even for myself, I personally feel like I started to change my views of AI and how it could be used in the future. And yeah, I just I just thought this was a really great chat. So I hope that you found that informative. I hope that you found it inspiring, that maybe it has you starting to think about where the future of the industry could go and what it might entail and how you want to move forward with that. So Daniel, if you are listening to this podcast, thanks again for being on. I think this was really inspiring and people needed to hear this. So with that said, we have reached the end of the episode. And as always, if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, definitely make sure to do so. And also make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. And that is where I help out musicians with creating pro sounding recordings from their home studios. There are a ton of great resources on the website, everything from books to courses to coaching and a whole bunch more. If you're looking for help with your recordings and you want to take the guesswork out of the process, then definitely visit MasterYourMix.com. All right, guys, that is it for this one. Thanks again for sticking around to the very end, and I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. Talk soon. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com.